Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and as ever, thanks very much for listening and for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Jim Secord to talk about his really beautiful new book, Visions of Science, Books and Readers at the Dawn of the Victorian Age. This came out in North America in 2014 with the University of Chicago Press. In this book, Jim takes us into a period of real intense transformation, and you'll hear about um, in a few moments the character of that transformation or those transformations in 19th century British society. Now, this was a moment for various reasons that occasioned the production of a number of works that were each in some way concerned with the relationship between science and progress. And in a series of seven body chapters that are framed by an introduction and an epilogue, he introduces us to seven really complex and rich and and sometimes very, very funny works that are dealing with these issues in different ways. Along the way, there are two major themes you'll hear about that are consistently important um, and that we need to keep in mind. One is the importance of the physicality of these books, and you'll hear us talking about that um, in the hour to come. And the other is the way that the reading of these books, readers, readerships, and transformations thereof, help create the book as an object and help transform um, the kind of object that it is. So it's beautiful reading, it's really fun reading, it's compellingly argued, and it was a great pleasure to talk with Jim about it. I hope you enjoy the interview, and thanks for listening, and I also hope that you have a chance to take a look at the book. In addition to being a really wonderful read, it's also illustrated with some um, really wonderful color images that are really central for understanding some of the chapters. So again, thank you for listening, and enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Jim Secord about his new book, Visions of Science. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Jim, and thanks both for making time to talk with me today and for writing an awesome book. It's really great, and I'm really excited to talk with you about it. So welcome. Well, thanks very much, and it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you, too. So, Jim, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to work on the history of science? Well, I had always been interested in the um, humanities and the sciences ever since I was really very little growing up in Madison, Wisconsin. And I was very lucky, in fact, to go through a school system which really encouraged, you know, your, your own discovery, moving things in different ways, trying out different sorts of subjects. And that was true also when I went to Pomona College in Southern California, where I studied on the one hand geology and on the other hand English literature as a double major. Um, so it really meant that putting these two things together was always a, a big issue for me. And that's that's really behind why I became a historian of science. It was a way of placing the science that I knew and loved into a much deeper and broader kind of context and really understanding how things worked in science. And I, I really wanted to get at the kind of the core of that. Now, the subtitle of the book is Books and Readers at the Dawn 
of the Victorian age. And the book really opens out onto a period of what's quite intense transformation. So this is a utopian moment, as you um, put it in the book, when the sciences had a large role to play. There's an expanding reading public. There are transformations in publishing, increasingly fluid boundaries between types of writing, and an unparalleled concern with the future. Now, at this moment, a series of books reflected on the practices and the prospects of science as a way of getting at these transformations. And we'll talk as we get into the book and the chapters about seven, at least, of those books um, that you focus on. So how did you come to this topic? What brought you to not just books and readers in this period, but also a decision to write a book-length object about this topic? Well, it really struck me that the period of the very early 19th century was, as, as you say, a time when a huge amount was up for grabs. And that was a result of several historical factors coming together. On the one hand, you had the aftermath of the French Revolution and what that represented. That had been a revolution of reason, supposedly, in which Notre Dame, they threw the statues off and turned it into a temple of reason. In England, there was a huge reaction against the French Revolution and what to do about it. On the other hand, you have in Britain the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. And although its economic effects take a long time to really come on board, in terms of ideas, there was this huge sense that machines were going to change the way that people think. And so I was interested in this as a moment of real change in, in, in British political history and indeed in the history of Europe generally. It's a great period for political change and debate, and especially about what the new working classes are going to do, how they fit in with the middle classes, and what the role of the aristocracy, the traditional leaders of society, is going to be. It's often called in British political history the age of reform, and it culminates in the Great Reform Bill of 1832, which was really the first time that voting rights were given to anything but a very small group of people. So this moment in political history and, and intellectual change really coincides, and I had noticed this a long time ago, with the publication of some of the most famous books in history of science. And I, I began to realize that those, the writers of those books had seen in what was happening around them the possibility for really a, a total transformation of society and a society that would be based so they hoped, on ideals of reason, machines, and ultimately on ideas of science. Right. And we'll see many of these concerns, a kind of looking toward France, a concern with reform coming up in these really beautiful and very rich chapters on particular authors and books. And the first one um, is quite interesting, as all of them are. This is a book called Consolations in Travel by chemist Humphrey Davy. So this is a small book of dialogues that appeared in January 1830, and it included six dialogues on a range of topics. So the early geological history of the earth, generation and reproduction, great men in history and science, and the nature of time and immortality. So a quite wide-ranging set of subjects. Let's start off by trying to understand something about the author. Who is Humphrey Davy, and what's interesting to know about him to contextualize this work? Well, Davy himself um, was born in the 18th century, and he had come from quite humble background in, um, the, in Cornwall, was um, really a self-made man in many ways, and he gained great prominence 
through his association with um, some of the leaders of the Romantic movement in Britain, I mean, especially people like um, Coleridge, for example, or Robert Southey. These were very important literary figures at this period. And Davy really wanted to be what he called one of the sons of genius, um, to carry this idea of inspiration directly into chemistry. So around 1800, he began to do a series of really important chemical experiments that led to the discovery of new elements, especially some of the alkali elements. And he also ultimately moved to London and became a leader in London scientific life. He always had this kind of underlying sense that science was um, really could transport you into a different kind of world, both in terms of industry, but also in terms of your who you were personally. And towards the end of his life, when he's, he's basically dying, he's, he dies quite young, um, he writes as his really last testament a book called this book called Consolations of Travel. And what he's really trying to do in the book and what the book really appeals to people with is is a message that basically science can let you see into the future, into the deep past of geology. It can let you understand the nature of human life. And in some sense, that chemistry and science generally are, are kind of just ways of penetrating into the inner meaning of things. One of the most popular books that came out as a result of the French Revolution was um, basically a book called Ruins of Empires, which had talked about a new age of reason. But it was a very kind of book that was really seen by many Christians as being godless and dangerous. Humphrey Davy changes uh, that kind of message in a book like that. It has some of the same devices. For example, there's a seer that travels far above the earth and you can see all the ages of the earth, one after the other, the different succession of civilizations from, you know, the deep ancient past moving up toward the present and then ultimately the future. This, this kind of vision was something that in this earlier book was seen to be kind of anti-God or at least anti-Christian. For Davy, you could see it was instead the result of something. It was Christian philosophy. It was someone who this the man of science could lead you to understand what was going on in that world. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk um, in your discussion about this book about uh, many things about the structure and aspects of the book that we might not immediately think of when we think about the history of science as a kind of history of ideas, but that wind up being really, really important to the story. And the importance or the seeds of understanding the importance really start in this first body chapter. So um, you talk about the importance, for example, of the dialogue format um, insofar as it allowed readers to have the experience of, as you put it, participating in scientific debate and scientific discovery and conversation. Um, So that's really important here. But you also talk about the ways in which the physical format of the book and also the readership of the book wind up creating um, the, the nature of the book itself and its history. So let's talk a little bit about those. What was um, important about the physical um, elements of this book? It, it, you mentioned that it's a pocket edition. So how is that um, definitive here? Well, it's a small book. It's it's and it's printed in a very nice, beautiful type, quite widely spaced. It was relatively expensive for the amount of text you actually got. I mean, it wasn't crammed with text on the pages, um, and it has a kind of very elevated tone. To our eyes, it actually reads kind of as a hyper romantic work. It's actually you know very grand addresses and very lots of adjectives, very rich language. Um, so the combination of the text and the, um, the way that it 
it actually is presented physically mean that effectively you're looking at a book which was suitable for really a genteel audience and, and potentially especially an audience of women. And a lot of Victorian ladies later on in the 19th century loved this book. It was a book that they had by their bedsides. It was seen to be a sign of good taste. Um, and one of the Bronte novels actually mentions it being on a, on a table and it's used in the book as a way of actually saying, you know, this is a person who has potentially quite good taste about, you know, her relationship with religion, with God, with science. But there's a deeper point here, which I just, I think just to move back a bit, I really want to stress. And that was that your, your first question was the question I think we always ask when we see a book like Davy's Constellations, which was, tell me more about the author. I want to know about Humphrey Davy. And what I'm trying to do in this book is to say, well, you know, authors are important. But in fact, the first question we might ask about a book is, you know, let's look at the book as a physical object. Let's, let's see what it means effectively to judge a book a bit by its cover, by the way it's presented, by the kind of address it has to the reader, and by the way it draws in readers. We can see that really clearly in Humphrey Davy's book. I mean, here's a book, for example, that was pretty much meant to be rebound in nice leather by relatively wealthy patrons. Um, here's a book which is, is tasteful work, which you can slip in a pocket or read to your um, friends, you know, when, around a small circle. And it's also a book, as, as the dialogue form that it's written in suggests, it's a book that's, that presents different points of view. So the reader's invited in it to kind of take on different persona to try out to see what it might be to be, say, the chemist or the visionary or the ordinary man on the street or even the guy who's going to go off to the party and thinks all of this is, is really not very interesting in the first place. So there's a whole range of potential roles. And when you read the book, you kind of bounce back between those roles and you see things from different perspectives. And you kind of learn how to think about science from different points of view. Wonderful. Thank you. And we see um, at the end of this as well um, that how a book is read um, is also definitive for what the book is and what its legacy is and the, the way it transforms as an object. And you talk later on in this chapter, I'll just mention it, right, so that, um, so that we can move on, but about the changing ways it was read. And it becomes um, read as a kind of travel companion taken by tourists on holidays, right, which actually really interestingly transforms what the book is. So an attentiveness to not just materiality, but also readership is something that um, really wonderfully characterizes all of the chapters of the book. So if in the first chapter here, the first body chapter, we're trying to diminish the importance of the author's figure, as we move to the next book that you look at, the voice of the author actually becomes really important. And this is a, a chapter on Charles Babbage's reflections on the decline of science in England. Now, what to situate this, can you talk a little bit about the controversy um, at the Royal Society that this book emerged out of so we can understand the context a little bit? Mm. Well, I think one thing to recognize is that our whole idea of what a scientist means is really not present in this period. The word scientist, as I point out in the book, wasn't established regularly in use in England until the early 20th century. And in America, it's a bit earlier than that. But certainly in the 1830s and early 40s, people don't think of the term scientist. And, and that isn't just a kind of you know, easy switch where we have to think suddenly about natural philosophers or some other sort of role. It's a really deep way of thinking about what the purpose and role of the investigation into nature actually is. And this kind of 
debate about that investigation and who should conduct that under what circumstances was at the center of a huge debate that went on around 1830 in relationship to how different institutions should function for science. What's the role of government? What's the role of what's often called the old lady in this period, the Royal Society, which had been founded in the 17th century? Is is it just a group of fuddy-duddies at this point? That's what Charles Babbage is worried about here. So basically what, what the book in this chapter is dealing with is it, effectively it's an inter- intervention into a very, very fierce controversy. One of the things I try and point out in the book is we tend to think of this book as a book like you know any other book and we just put it on a shelf. But in fact, what we really need to see Babbage's book in relationship to is a very – um, is kind of a crossfire of, of newspaper bullets, of um, discussions that are going on in the popular press, of material that's going on in some of the different quarterly and weekly reviews. And Babbage is writing a pamphlet here because he wants to change the nature of that dispute and move the dispute onto a new plane. So Babbage is really trying to change the, the nature of the debate about what the new role for the person who deals with science ought to be. Um, and it's, it's a very powerful polemic in that way. It's almost kind of like he's an accountant and he's keeping a score about who's publishing what and which things are appearing where and he, he's really angry about the way that the accounts have been kept and he wants a better, more rational way of doing this. Sorry, I think you actually say here in, uh, that in this book we hear the voice of an angry accountant, right? Um, as a way of describing this. Now there's this um, argument at the Royal Society over what to do with this donated collection of books, right, that were mm. largely literary and historical. And Babbage is arguing that they should be sold and the money used to buy books that would benefit mm. the society. So there's, again, this interest in accounting, right? Now, And he begins to write um, these critiques, as you mentioned, in the form of letters and newspapers. He gives these criticisms at meetings. And so, again, the materiality of how this book emerged, the sort of embryo and understanding it as coming out of this, is really, really important. Yeah. One of the really interesting things that's happening here, and this is um, something that will lead us into what happens next, is that his voice is very critical, right? He's making a decision. He's, he's very angry. He's making a decision to criticize people by name. Um, and this is it, it's a very striking for readers. So how does this aspect of what he's doing in this book shape or affect his readership? And how does that... Um, what, what's important about understanding that for us to understand how the book was read and sort of what happens to this book as book afterwards? Mm. Well, one of the things to realize is this is a pamphlet. It's a relatively, I mean, it's a longer than a te- traditional pamphlet, but it's really in, in its kind of tone and the sort of book it is, it's really intervening in the kind of way that pamphlets did during this period. It's kind of like a, it's supposed to effectively be like a knife or a bullet that just kind of boom, does the job. And so that, that attacking voice you talked about is, is very prominent in it. And you can see it's, it's printed rather nicely, it's, but that's because the audience he's aiming at is generally one of gentlemen of science, people of his class. Um, he wants those people to take what he's doing seriously, and he wants it to be part of that ongoing pamphlet-style debate that's going on in this period. Babbage himself is very familiar with this kind of world because he's um, he's uh, very shortly after the book's published, he actually runs for a seat in Parliament. He wants to be in the government because he sees that ultimately the kind of rational view, as he would see it, that he's supporting 
ought to be present in government and change legislation. It's not just about, you know, access to knowledge for workers or other sorts of people. He thinks that institutions like the one I'm at here at the University of Cambridge um, are fundamentally corrupt and need to be changed. And the education needs to be changed to reflect that. There needs to be much more support for scientific activity. There need to be jobs for scientists. The whole system needs to be changed. Anybody who goes into government, they need to know about science too. And ultimately, that I think he believes that there's this, this is all the product of the new machine culture that's coming on board. He's very eager to make sure that people and machines work together. And ultimately, machines themselves may be able to do what people actually do. We need to follow out that kind of model of machine rationality to its final end. So he has a real utopian view about the, the promise of machines in relationship to the human mind. And this polemic that he writes on the reflections of the decline of science is, is really, in some sense for him, the first salvo in changing that world. Now, that voice is really powerful um, in terms of its impact on some of the authors and thinkers that we're going to read about um, in the pages to come and talk about in the moments to come. I think once we get to the end of the book and talk about Thomas Carlyle, we're talking about someone who described Babbage as a cross between a frog and a viper, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I love the fact that um, one of the people he attacked um, is the, the, the person who was attacked, his wife was so upset she wasn't able to get out of bed for weeks. Uh, it was quite... <laughs> So she was, people were really upset about what he said. It wasn't the sort of society in which this was really the dumb thing. That's right. And, and the next person um, who's featured in the book is also um, fairly upset about this. So you describe Herschel, John Herschel, um, who's the author of the next book that we'll talk about, reading um, Babbage's um, work and urging him to burn or rewrite the manuscript. Right? So he's yeah. also really powerfully um, uh, responding to this. And Herschel's also writing in the, the same context uh, mm. of the turmoil, right, over this royal society that we've just talked about. Now, Herschel is an astronomer and a mathematician, and chapter three focuses on a work of his called Preliminary Discourse on the Study of Natural Philosophy. So can you talk a little bit about this work? Yeah, it's not a title that you'd immediately think was going to be a bestseller, but this was a this book sold extremely well. Babbage's work sold a few hundred copies, basically, but this work really reached many, many people, and it's a completely different response in many ways to the same sort of problem that Babbage has actually identified. Herschel was furious about what Babbage had done, as you said, but what he wants to see instead is for people to begin to think more rationally, but to do it in a kind of way that's much gentler, much more encompassed with the way that they operate every day. So in some ways, one way of thinking about this book, and one I really encourage, is that just look at it as a physical book again. And what you've got here is not a standard book of academic philosophy, which would be a kind of either a large kind of quarter size, as they call them, or a, a folio tome. This is actually a small book. It's about the size of a modern small paperback. Um, and it's basically intended in many ways as a conduct manual. This is a book that people like um, like Davy's book in some ways, can take around with them, but it's much, much cheaper per word than Davy's book was. And it's intended in some ways as, as a book that many, many different people can use and read about to encourage them both, on the one hand, to think well 
of the gentlemen of science and those who are scientific practitioners, but the also to think that those modes of reasoning, to think in that rational kind of way, to think about, you know, the, how to induce things from phenomena in a kind of ordered way, those kinds of scientific spectacles in their ways are ones that everybody ought to wear. And so Herschel's preliminary discourse is really both in its form and also in its content is a message that we can actually achieve a more rational society by changing the everyday way that we act and interact with one another and the way that we approach the world around us. So science here is a model of good behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this, this again was a book that it inspired some people. Charles Darwin, in fact, read it before he went on the Beagle Voyage. And it's one of the reasons why he decided that for him, a scientific vocation could really come first. Um, but even for Darwin, I think it was very important in terms of teaching him that, you know, you could actually be in the sciences, but you could behave in a certain sort of way. And that that kind of behavior was the way of the future. So this is a book that's very, it, it, the book sells, I can't remember the figures exactly, but certainly tens of thousands, maybe even a hundred thousand copies. This is a book that actually is getting into a lot of people who have otherwise almost no exposure to the sciences at all. And so it's a, it's a really important kind of way that if, if you think of what happens in the 19th century and the increasing role that science has, um, it's, it's a kind of – its whole tone and its whole way of thinking show how that kind of idea of an age of progress, an age based on science that was so important to the Victorians, how that actually gets established. And you talk a lot in this chapter as well, um, in addition to illuminating the um, – how important understanding the physicality of the book is, um, you also talk about the importance of understanding, again, how the book was read and how that transformed really what the book was um, in years to come. Now, this yeah. wasn't originally, as you describe here, intended to be a work of philosophy, but it actually became a work of philosophy, and this was due to how it was read. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Well, one of the things that's quite interesting is, of course, reviewers pick the book up for their own purpose. And a couple of the most prominent reviewers were none other than John Stuart Mill, the great inductive philosopher, and William Hewell, who was master of Trinity College here in Cambridge. And Hewell and Mill differ on a huge range of issues and have a big dispute between them. But one of the things they both agree is that basically, rather than reading Herschel's book as, as a conduct manual, as I've said, and as indeed I think most readers probably approached it, they view it as a kind of slightly half-baked work of technical philosophy. In other words, it has an inductive theory in it. But it's not really worked out in the analytical way that you'd expect a good philosopher to write. And it's, I think, underlying that is the sense that the purpose of the book is quite different. But our current framing of the book, I mean, certainly when you read about it in the main literature, some of which is excellent on um, the history of 19th century philosophy, Herschel's book is always seen as a philosophical text. And it's put alongside books like Mill and Huell and, and Kant and Hegel and a whole range of books like that. And to be honest, by some comparisons like that, it doesn't look that successful. Um, it's got interesting features, but it's it doesn't fit very well. And part of what alerted me to the fact that it could be thought about in this other way is the fact that it, you, tra you can trace right back to those original readers who are so prominent and influential among philosophers and why it's been picked up in the way it has. And instead, I tried to look for other sorts of readers and other kinds of uses. I mean, one 
one of the main ways the book was used is that um, if you look at a lot of the popular journals of the period, they take extracts from Herschel, like little sentences or bon mots or paragraphs, and they put those into their own works um, just as quotations. So they're little like, like little beauties, so to speak, that are kind of anthologized and placed in this way. So it's a kind of way of allowing people to appreciate, well, you know, here's a way of thinking through this problem. It's, it's kind of like a little thought for the day or something. And the book is used in this kind of, um, this, this, well, in a way, this kind of conduct way very, very often. So there are different sorts of readers and you can trace out how that's shaped the way that we approach the book and the way we think about it. Now, as we move from this to the next book, we move to an author who is completely fascinating for many, many reasons, and this is mathematician Mary Somerville. So let's start, because um, as a figure, she's really interesting, and by the end of the chapter, she's not just a figure, but a figurehead on a merchant ship, right? So understanding those <laughs> figures, I think, pretty fair. Yeah, yeah. This chapter. Can you talk a little bit about Mary Somerville? Um, what do we need to understand about her to understand how she came to this project? Well, Mary Somerville was born in Scotland, and in many ways, um, her early background was um, quite typical of, um, she came from a relatively conservative family in a mid-sized town, um, but she actually had this incredible interest, which in fact she developed from reading a fashion magazine in the 1790s. She noticed that there was a, a, a geometrical problem that was set in this magazine, and so she asked, you know, what is this, this what is the subject algebra, she asked, in fact, and so she got hooked on, on mathematics, especially, although she was interested in many different areas of science. And so she was quite fortunate in many ways. Her first marriage was a disaster, but fortunately, in many ways, her husband, her first husband died very young. And her second husband was much more understanding. In fact, I think it's pretty much as a wedding gift. He gives her a whole series of mathematical books in French um, and gives that, that, that book, that collection's now um, in Girton College Library here in Cambridge. I've used it a bit. Um, anyway, the, Mary Somerville was really became a master of some of the most difficult mathematical techniques um, that were going on in Europe at this time. And she was one of the very few people in England, not, not even just among women, but among anyone, who really had mastered not just the calculus, which, of course, you could learn at Cambridge and other places, but it was really, she was learning material which was really at the high end of, you know, French mathematics, analytical mathematics, as they developed in the 18th and early 19th century. And it's really out of this that she emerges when she moves with her husband to London, they become a kind of center for um, scientific conversation, discussion. She's um, very involved in London society. She knows Humphrey Davy. Um, she knows um, John Herschel, all the people in the book in many ways she's, she's talking with and involved with. And so um, it's out of this background then that she's approached by um, the Lord Chancellor, um, Henry Broom, who's really one of the key figures in trying to encourage this idea of knowledge for everybody at a minimum price. And Broom does, I think of more than anybody else, is a utopian ideal of science. He, he thinks, in fact, that it's going to be possible to take the core mathematical messages of both Newton's Principia and Pierre-Simon Laplace's Mechanique Celeste, 
both of which are incredibly technical mathematical works, particularly the Laplace, is, is really almost impenetrable for most readers in this period. Um, and to make these available to ordinary working men in the space of, say, 800 pages or so. And so he's hoping that thousands of people will be able to appreciate these works as a result of a kind of redacted version, but still one that has the mathematics up to the full level. And Mary Somerville, I think, thinks almost immediately that this is really a step too far in terms of scientific education. But she does take on the task of producing a version of um, the Mechanique Celeste, for a much broader sort of audience. And she tries to make it simpler. Uh, the book itself is not that easy to read. It's, it's, has, it tends to add bits so that the proofs are clearer than they were in the original Laplace. It's help, you know, it helps you in various ways. But what's really striking about it is she adds at the front of it a, a, a short preface. It's actually a fairly long, about 70 pages or so, um, outlining the basic principles of the kind of view of the world that modern astronomy provides. Um, so you understand where the universe has come from through the nebular hypothesis. You understand the way in which the um, forces between the Earth and the moon work. But it's in a non-mathematical treatment. And this this short um, preface really became, the introduction really becomes something that provides a basis for what Mary Somerville then go on, goes on to write, which is a book called Connection of the Physical Sciences. And that's the book that this chapter is mainly about. It's a wonderful book that gives you a conspectus across all the different sciences and ties them together and shows the links between them and how you can see all of the creation of the world, everything around it, as the product of an understanding of mathematics, underlying them as a mathematical thread that ties everything together. And so she brings these together in her connection to the physical sciences. And that book becomes, again, a great classic. It goes through many editions in the 19th century. It's continually revised to keep up with new findings. And it's a fascinating read, I think. It's quite a tough read. I mean, I wouldn't go and think you're going to read it in order to kind of have a light read. But if you pay close attention to what it's doing, it provides in words the sort of equivalent, I think, that Mary Somerville felt herself when she was thinking mathematically. And that was a kind of, for her, that was the deepest understanding of how the world was put together that a person could get. It was, in, for her, it was as close as you could get to God. And so she's trying to create that sense for ordinary readers through what she does in the connection of the physical sciences. Now, you describe this in this chapter, um, or you describe some of what's happening in this book as a kind of finding God through mathematics. And you describe the ways, as you just, um, I think, really beautifully put it, that the book is showing that advanced math, um, and specifically, right, she's interested in the French context, but, you know, more generally, advanced math could be used to understand, as you put it, the manifestations of divine creation. Now, because this relationship between what's happening in the book, what the book is doing to exemplify science on some level, and how that relates to creation and to God. This is something that we're also going to see when we turn to the book that comes next, right, on, on geology. Can you talk a little bit about that context? So what broader context um, you know, the broader, relatively speaking, right? Uh, what broader sure. context um, in understanding this interplay between divine creation and science as a path to understanding it, do we need to understand to not just 
um, sort of contextualize Mary Somerville, but also when we turn to Charles Lyell to contextualize what's happening in his work on geology. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things you can see in all the books I talk about in this book as a whole, it was it's very clear in the Davy as well, is that a lot of the best science in this period had been and was being done in France. And by the lights of many British people, it was being used for subversive, dangerous, anti-Christian principles. And what this generation of writers is really trying to do in many ways, and here Lyle is a perfect example, is in some sense trying to provide a safer version of French science, show that it doesn't lead to atheism. What it leads to instead is a deeper understanding of the laws of nature and how God works through laws. It's not like there's individual miracles happening all the time that are intervening all over the place. But for many of these writers, the greatest conception of God was to think that it's the laws underpinning that can be understood through science that are the greatest proof and exemplification of God's existence and what he's actually like. In the principles of geology, I mean, geology was quintessentially a subject which had potential, at least, for causing trouble for religion. Um, clearly, the story, if you take it absolutely literally, the story of the flood and the story of the early creation of the earth don't seem to fit immediately very well with what geology tells you. Clearly, geology does not say that the world was created in, in um, six days, and clearly, there might be some evidence of a flood, but increasingly by the around 1830, it was becoming clear that that flood was much more local than anybody had expected, and it certainly didn't provide a large-scale explanation for the history of the Earth. It's interesting, I think, that what people are looking for in, in all of this is, is a way forward. And uh, geologists generally in this period, except a very long time span, the question is, how do you think about that time span? How do you people it with... You know, animals, plants, with the whole kind of world. How how is that going to happen? How do you get, in other words, a history of the earth? Martin Rudwick's published a wonderful book recently, which is really about this very subject, about the deep history that of the earth that geology provides. Now, Lyle is really important because what he does for readers is to provide a toolkit for filling out that history, for thinking about how to understand the past. And for him, that's really a question of perception. How do you look around the world around us and how do you use those causes that we can currently see, some of which are much more violent than anybody had thought, how do we use those to explain what we can see in the past? So don't rely on floods, don't rely on sudden catastrophes, don't rely on miracles, instead rely on the slow, ordinary processes that we can see around us and that explains the history of the earth. Now, a couple of the words that you've been mentioning are words that readers might take for, or listeners right now might take for granted. Of course, you know, when we talk about geology, we talk about science, we talk about causes. But this is actually a moment, as you show in the book, where geology is not yet a science, right? Mm. One of the aims that Lyle is bringing to the work is you show 
think really compellingly here um, is that um, is to make geology into a vocation, to make geology into a science, to talk about geology in terms of causes. And so these, I think, aspects of how we understand geology and the history of science that we take for granted are really coming into being um, at this moment in a really fascinating way. Yeah. Not just so it's not just though um, the sort of history of geology as a science that's really interesting here. It's also once again the physicality of the book that mm-hmm. is important and interesting. So yeah. we'll talk here um, about the importance of the fact that the publisher who prints uh, principles of geology is actually putting it out in a very expensive edition that's affordable only to the wealthy. And readers or listeners might think, oh, well then, you know, in contradistinction to some of the books that we've been talking about before, cheap, easily accessible, um, which uh, we've talked about the fact that those cheap and easily accessible books were widely circulated and so were very influential. That We're talking about now a book that's very expensive and accessible only to the few must mean it wasn't very influential, right? Because it wasn't really circulated. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about the physicality of principles and um, what's important that we understand about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, The Principles of Geology appears in three thick volumes. They're quite handsome books. They even have a few color illustrations. So it is an expensive book. Um, Part of this is, as Lyle very much believes that the first thing to do is to reach the elite. You need to convince some of those people. um, And it needs to come from a decent publisher. You can't make it look like it's just some ragbag production. You need to have something that looks really respectable. And so publishing with John Murray in that sense, is a really good idea. One point in the book I call the principles of geology a Trojan horse. So you have to imagine that it looks from the outside like a very safe, ordinary book, you know, and then on the inside is this kind of secret army of reform ready to come out and change how people think about the earth, but also think about science more generally. It's also, I think, very interesting that Lyle and his publisher were very canny. What they do is after the book's been out a while, and it's been well-reviewed and discussed, and people are talking about it in the more elite circles, then they publish a cheap edition. And so immediately, that makes it much more available to a much wider middle-class audience, primarily. And the book, of course, is also, like all these books, is extracted and um, bits taken out and pieces in various journals and newspapers and periodicals. So, in fact, the book becomes available very, very widely and, again, goes through many, many editions. The the final edition, which was published just after Lyle's death um, in 1875, is the 11th edition. So we're talking here about a life work of transformation and change of the book itself, but also of reaching a huge array of authors and really changing people's views about how to think about the relationship between God and, and themselves through their interaction with this this very rich book that is there. And I think even just in its physical size, this is a big book. It's clearly much harder to argue against a book like this, you know, with all the worked out examples and details and so forth that it's got. It almost kind of overwhelms you in a kind of deluge or volcano um, outputting of, um, of, of material that's supporting its arguments about how to see in geology. I'm sure the use of flood and volcano metaphors there was not at all germane nah, <laughs> to nah, the nah. principles of geology. 
So as we move from this to the next book, we move into another really fascinating context, both from the perspective of um, understanding the materiality of books and also from the perspective of understanding readers and readership and how influential that is. Now, this is a book called um, Constitution of Man, Considered in Relation to External Objects. This was a book that is produced um, using machine-based printing, at least for a later edition that you talk about here. And you talk about the importance of machine-based printing, right, to shaping how the book is produced and how it's read and what happens to it. So um, this is a book just to kind of set the stage for listeners that also challenges what we think of when we think of and talk about a book, right? Because over the course of the different editions, as you show here, the text is altered and expanded so dramatically that you call it effectively a serial production, right? Not a single work. It's like it becomes fewer or the, or the pages wind up being reduced, but um, the ultimately um, the edition that you talk about um, at the, toward the end of this chapter is twice as long as the mm. initial one. So it even is questioning what we think of when we think about a book, which is really useful. So let's backtrack <laughs> so that <laughs> listeners understand what the heck is she talking about and talk about this book. What is this book about? Well, it's like you said, it's called The Constitution of Man. And what it's really arguing is that we need to understand not just geology or the life sciences or something through ideas of the laws of nature, but we need to understand the constitution of the very mind itself. And so this is a book that really sets out the idea that you need to understand how the mind works according to laws. And if you live by those laws, then you will have a good and happy life. And so it relates these kind of the, the laws of the mind itself to the laws of external nature and to the laws of physics and the laws of society. And so the constitution of man is right at the center of these, this conception of law. And so in many ways, what the book is saying from our point of view is, is not exactly trivial, but seems rather obvious. But from the point of view of many people for whom the idea that the human mind itself was really completely separate and different, a uh, spiritual entity only, the idea that somehow it's a material thing that can be understood through the laws of nature was potentially quite a dangerous idea. And so it's at one point, at one, one level, of course, the book tries to show that its idea of law fits in with divine law as well. But it is actually a book that's controversial. And part of that is, of course, it is arguing a controversial idea that the brain is the organ of the mind and that we can understand how the mind works by looking at its external shape and the development of what, what are considered to be its different organs. Um, this is a very kind of closely identified faculty psychology. So basically there's, there's for example, um, a faculty um, which I rather lack, in fact, the faculty of number, um, which um, is people who are really good at maths will have a well-developed organ of number within their brain. Now, eventually, this idea led on to ideas of the location in our brains of particular areas which might have, you know, certain tendencies or possibility things that they kind of control, cerebral localization. Um, but in this kind of science, it's something that is, is in many ways a useful way of judging character. We're back to that idea again. It's a way of understanding, you know, if you're trying to choose servants, you, you can understand by looking directly at them and you can see the character of their skull, the character of their brains um, as, a, as manifested in their skull, and you can see what kind of person they might actually be. Um, so 
this book by allows you to help judge those issues. But most importantly, once you judge those issues, you know yourself and then you work with the qualities of mind you have to develop the right faculties to downplay those which are negative and to make in some sense yourself a better person. And these ideas in this new science of mind then became very influential in prison reform, in um, anti-slavery campaigns, in a whole array of different kinds of activities in this period. And it was very influential. Queen Victoria had her young son, the future king, phrenologized when he was young. George Eliot, the novelist, shaved her head so that she could have the character of her um, her phrenological organs, as they're called, um, evaluated by the author of the book, by George Coombe, who was a close friend of hers. So these are really key ideas, this idea that the mind is material and can be understood through the laws of nature. So one of the goals here um, for this author, George Coombe, is fairly parallel with one of the goals that we talked about when we talked about Lyle. So Lyle's book is trying, among other things, to make geology into a science. And Lyle is, is fairly successful, relatively speaking, in doing that. Coombe is trying also um, here to use this document to encourage readers to think about phrenology as a science. Mm. And he actually is not um, successful in terms of that goal, but the book winds up being very successful in other ways mm. despite that. Um, and in part, as you describe, I think, really, really um, compellingly and interestingly at the end of this chapter, in part that success um, is due to how it was read. And how it was read may not have been in the spirit of treating phrenology as a science in the way Coombe had intended, um, but it was very influential in other ways. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why was this so influential despite the fact that it did not result in phrenology being widely accepted as a science? Well, I think one of the things you need to realize to understand this is this is a period when life in some ways is becoming increasingly anonymous. People are more organized in big cities. They don't necessarily know one another. Who are you going to trust? It's very hard to tell. And so if you have a concrete theory of mind that helps you to judge characters from externals, that's a really useful thing to have. And so there's constant discussion about how you might use phrenology for those purposes. And there's a lot of interest. That's why it plays such a big role in reform and so forth. The problem for it is it's, it, it doesn't really succeed in becoming, um, by and large, a research science in itself, although it feeds in in certain ways into the development of psychology. Um, this, this issue, one of the ways you can tell the book sold so well and was discussed quite widely is that um, there are a lot of parodies and jokes about phrenology. And one of my favorite ones is the illustration I have in the book. Fortunately, it's in color. It's how I got the color illustrations actually in the book because when it was printed in black and white, it looked so miserable it didn't work. Was um, Basically, it's it's instead of having a phrenology based on the skull, this is a, a new science, a parody science called totology, which is basically about a science of shoes. And the author of this parody shows all sorts of different shoes, some of which are really tight for people who are penny pinching and, you know, other ones for who, um, you know, are opposed to reform and have very gouty feet and show they've been spending too much time in clubs. Um, other ones who, you know, like to ride a lot and they have, you know, riding boots with spurs on them, a whole array of different shoes that are shown in this in this picture. And so you can just see how people like playing around with this idea of insides and outsides and who is who. 
So I hope you understand that you've now perfectly segued into the next chapter by introducing a science of shoes, because this opens the door for us to move to a science or philosophy of clothes, and thus to Sartre Resartus. So excellent segue there. Well, <laughs> well, I have to say, I mean, it's it's interesting because it was after I wrote about Kuhn. I was giving, in fact, I, one of the ways the book got started was I was invited very kindly by the university librarians here to give the Sanders Lectures, which is a series of three lectures on the history of books. And I wanted to talk about these physical books and how they worked and so forth. And my last lecture that I gave in that series of the three was on Kuhn's Constitution of Man. And during the course when I was actually giving the lecture, I realized that the ending of the book that I had planned was really bad and it wasn't going to work. And what I really needed to do instead was to talk about clothes. I had been obsessed by clothes throughout the lectures. I mean, everything from the calico dress that was the bound into the, I mean, there's a cover of um, the um, Discourse of Natural Philosophy, Herschel's book, which is calico, to the, the kind of issues I've just been talking about, the, the, the science of shoes. To talk about a philosophy of clothes was perfect. And, of course, the book for that is Sartre Resartus, um, Thomas Carlyle's great satire. This book has been categorized by – it's quite a famous book, actually. And it, it, it's kind of on the margins but just about within the canon of English literary works that people read in courses and so forth. It's, in, it's the only one of the books I discuss, for example, that's in um, Penguin Books and Oxford Classics and series like that. Um, and Carlyle is – absolutely brilliant writer and what he's doing in this book is basically he one of the things he's doing anyway is to parody the very idea of these reflective books on the sciences he says you know we have book like books like Laplace's Mechanique Celeste we have philosophies of chemistry we have you know sciences of even of sleep and dreams there's books about that in this period he says it's about time we had a philosophy of clothes and so in this um, what's initially actually a series of articles in this work, he goes through and in a very complicated, but also once you read it closely, a very entertaining way, he talks about a, a German professor, um, Tuffelstruck, who's, um, means devil shit and, and right. tra translated from German, who's writing this great work on clothes. And then there's an editor who's trying to manage this work. And it turns out it's all just scraps and pieces of paper and so forth. And it's all assembled and thrown in. And then, of course, there's the anonymous author of the piece itself, Thomas Carlyle, who's sort of the puppet master behind the whole thing. So there's about three or four layers, at least, of different voices speaking in the work. And putting all those together is quite fascinating for the reader to go through. Um, the, the work really has, it, it's a, on one level, it's an autobiography of the German professor. At another level, it's an attempt to put forward really quite a sublime philosophy about the relationship between nature and spirit. And in many ways, between who we are as naked bipeds, as Carlyle calls us, and as spiritual creatures. And what's the relationship going on there? How do these things work together? And so in some sense, in a, in a book that I, like I said at the beginning, was, was about how do you judge books by their cover? How do, you, how do you judge books by their physical form? A book like this, a, a work like this, really, that talks about these questions of insides and outsides and appearances and meaning was absolutely perfect way of ending the book. And of course, Carlyle's absolutely aware that this, this is what he's doing. He had started off in Scotland, 
um, in many ways, hoping to pursue a career in mathematics. He actually taught mathematics at a school for a while, and he even published a mathematical translation of one of these French mathematical works. And so he's really up on a lot of the latest mathematics in sort of the way Mary Somerville is almost, um, not quite. But he's very aware of the issues there. But on the other hand, it's he's very concerned that all the books I've talked about give too much role to reason. They're too much part of what he sees as a kind of grinding machine culture, that the mind in books like Coombs, which he detests, is being treated as though it's like a hopper for grinding out corn. It's something that has this kind of nightmarish quality to it. And so for him, the kind of machine-based culture that Babbage envisioned was the absolute worst thing that you could imagine. But even the sort of way that someone like Lyle speaks, he can't stand that kind of, you know, rational view of the world as philosophy. So he's trying to provide something which is more human, more spiritual, but on the other hand, takes into account the fact that we're always ourselves complicated mixtures of, of spirit and matter, and that we're never really going to fully resolve that. And in um, his description, as you, I think, really wonderfully render it here, in this chapter of the figure of the tailor, it's really interesting how these things come together, right? The tailor winds up being a very uh, a man who's who's starving, he's downtrodden, but he also winds up being a man of divine status, right? Quite an exalted figure in a sense, even insofar as he's quite humble um, mm. compared to some of the other figures, like the dandy, right? Mm. Yes, absolutely. He picks up on these contemporary dandies, of course, would you know be wearing really fancy high clothes and so forth. And there's another cartoon that I reproduce in the book that shows a dandy ignoring his tailor, who's kind of you know trying to get a bill paid, but is having no success with this this dandy. The tailors themselves were really downtrodden at this period, and in fact, the, the, one of the things that I think hasn't been enough recognized is that the reason um, Carlisle, in almost at the end of the book, introduced Introduces this whole business about dandies and tailors is because there was a big tailor strike on right around the time the book was coming out. He's very aware of the kind of politics of labor in the production of writing, but also just of, of human life. And he, he really thinks in the end that the kind of work that tailors do um, is what is, is our ultimate salvation. Um, that kind of pure work to make something that, that kind of means that our insides and outsides are connected in some sort of way. And that's what the tailor represents, this kind of almost godlike figure for him. And that's, I, th I think, thinking about the book this way, I think is, is very helpful. It means that in many ways, a lot of aspects of the book, you know, is it a novel? Is it an essay? Is it a satire? Become a lot clearer once you realize the context of the kind of ideas about these utopian ideas about reason and the progress of the human mind that are so present in this very concentrated period in the early 1830s. This is a real moment. It's, it's like the period, some, you know, there's, there are different points when this happens. I mean, um, I think politically, some people felt it, say, when Obama was coming up in for election, you know, there was a sense of real possibility things could open up. Or in Britain, it happened at the time of the Olympics. There was a sense that things were really going to change and the country could suddenly come together. And this moment of the early 1830s is like that, but even more so. It's a, it's a moment when really for the first time, when, when people think about the future, they begin to think about science. And they think that science-based technology, although it's not changing the world right now, is going to change. It's, it's going to be driving that motor. Some like it, um, like many of the people in this book. Others, like Carlyle, are really worried about what's on the horizon. 
This is, incidentally, one of the first books that I ever read as an undergraduate. So my um, first of what wound up being a regular series of forays to the basement of the Harvard bookstore in the used section <laughs> was wandering around and found this book, Sardis, uh, what the heck is that? I don't know. It looks cool. I'm going to buy it and read it. No idea what it was. Right? <laughs> I, all, I had no idea what was going on. I knew nothing. You know, I was a first year in university, but I knew that it was fascinating. And for me as a reader, this was all about this figure of you no know, professor devil shit, basically. <laughs> and um, this is, I bring this up because you talk um, late in this chapter about the fact that the way this book was read um, after it goes from you know, something that's published in this, this series of eight installments to being published as a book actually transformed for readers um, mm -hmm. what it was and how it was understood. It became um, something that was read as a kind of spiritual biography. So as we come to the end of our conversation, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that's fascinating about this book is that, like you say, early on, it was not a big success. I mean, people didn't really understand what was going on. I think their reaction was a little bit like many people would have if they found it in the basement of the Harvard Library. But it rapidly, for many, many people, um, it becomes, out of all the books here, something that really changes lives. This is a book that people read really closely, almost the way that they would read the Bible. Um, for many of them, it defines the idea that a kind of vocation based on work, on really, you know, devoting your whole self or the vocation to something, and maybe that something would be science, was something that was really well worth pursuing. So rather ironically, some of the leading figures of later 19th century science, people like John Tyndall, the physicist, or people like Thomas Henry Huxley, um, who of course was Darwin's bulldog and a great um, advocate of evolution, both of them really love Carlyle and love Sartre Resartus. Um, in some sense, the Taylor retailered is sort of the tie. That's the translation of Sartre Resartus. Um, if we were going to translate it, you can, you can actually think of it. The Taylor retailered retailered is what these authors are continuously doing. They're making the book over and over again into something new for each generation. So Jim, now that we're at um, almost the end of our time, it's probably a good time to wrap up. Now, there's also an epilogue in the book that talks about, among other things, um, just this really useful context in which we might understand these individual books as being part of, collectively, a context in which science is linked with progress. And you talk about, as well, the relationship between understanding literature of knowledge and understanding literature of power, and really um, claiming that the literature of knowledge here was a literature of power. And so I'll just mention that um, for listeners so that they can take a look at the epilogue and, and learn more about that. Now, there's a lot that we talked about, but of course, there's a ton of material in the book that we haven't had a chance to get to. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners, and maybe especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Well, I think the main thing I'd stress is that I, I think it's summed up by the cover of the book, in fact, which I've really been insistent was um, on the Chicago edition. And I'm really pleased that they've got it there. Basically, what it shows is a kind of robot-like creature. Um, it's sweeping away uh, uh, someone who's dressed in old clothes. It's part of a larger caricature when all sorts of aspects of the old are being sweep, swept away. And if you look at that kind of monster really closely, you can see he's got a pipe with a balloon coming out of his head. On the top is the new college in um, London that has the 
you know, new learning present within it. Gas lights form his eyes. And in fact, his main body is composed out of a printing press. This, in fact, is, is the idea of a new kind of knowledge, transforming the world we live in, and in fact, making the world that we live in today. This is a moment when, it's one of those foundational moments, I think, when a lot of ways of thinking and assumptions that we've got are being established at this moment of great change. I, I mentioned that in terms of how we think about the future, but you can see it in all sorts of other ways. The, this monster on the, the cover suggested in others in terms of technological change and the kind of idea that machines are going to take over the world and what that's going to do. Well, you know, here we have that vision, but it's actually occurring in 1829, 1830. And that's when this whole kind of story gets really started for me. So in some sense, it, I'm really fascinated by this, this kind of idea of a special moment when these things are going on. And I, I hope readers get that out of a book like this, that in some sense... Another way of thinking about the book is, is I, I think of it like a, a series of books on a shelf from that Henry Fox Talbot took. This is one of the very earliest photographs. It was done in the very um, late 30s, early 40s, and appeared in his book, The Pencil of Nature. That series of books on there, books on the shelf. And here in this book, we've got seven books that are going to define a new way of thinking about things. And it's not just that they've got scientific ideas in them. They have a whole imagination about who we are, where we're going to go, and where we've been. And that, that for me, is really the excitement of this. And I hope people do actually, obviously, read my book. But I hope, in fact, it encourages people to think more about books like this in general. So speaking of where we've been and where we're going to go, um, what's next for you now that the book is out? What's currently inspiring you? Well, I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm going to be on leave next year, so I'm planning on um, working on quite a general book. I'm, I'm very interested in ideas of circulation and how knowledge circulates generally in society and, and, and indeed globally. And I want to look at this as a whole range of different levels. And so I'm, I'm planning and writing a, a, quite a short book, um, really, to set out some of the ideas about thinking about that. Just, just I think, because it's one of the things I love about history of science is it's a way of encouraging people to think more broadly about science. I, I tell my students sometimes, you know, if you've been in science, it's it's a bit like being a, a gopher underground. And this is a chance to, you know, pop your head up above ground or even maybe go up in a helicopter. And that's really what I want to do in this next book. Wonderful. So best of luck with that next book, Jim. And thank you so much um, for talking today. It's really been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I found it a lot of fun. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.